Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm uh, hosting today, uh, Sean Patrick, professional film critic. Uh, joining me today is uh, Cousin Jeff. Hola! And uh, you can find us on you know Facebook, Twitter, the other social medias, all the various podcasting apps. I'm sure one of, you're listening to us on one of them, I, I imagine. So... <laughs> It's it, they're doing it by telekinesis. That's how that works, right? No, you, wait, you have to listen to, to an app. You're not in the room, are you? Maybe. <laughs> Look around. Um, all right. So uh, to this week, we're talking about a number of different things. We'll be talking about uh, "Don't Worry, Darling." We'll be talking about Avatar. But I wanted to start with uh, uh, first of all, you saw Pearl, and you haven't had a chance uh, to talk about it on the show. So yes, I was a big fan of X. I couldn't wait to see Pearl. And, oh my god, did I love this movie. It's possibly one of my favorites of the year. Um, I didn't really care about Mia Goth all that much. I mean, she's she was good in Suspiria. She was good in X. But, my god. It was, like, transcendent. She was so good in Pearl. I mean, just off the charts, the that, that monologue is the best monologue of any actor this year. Well, and it, you know, everybody's like, my friend Justin was like, oh, you got, she gives this monologue towards the end, and, you know, it's right at the end, you gotta, really gotta watch it. And the whole time she was doing it, I just kept sensing the danger coming out of her in waves that I don't think even she realized until the last minute. And I kept expecting her sister-in-law to get up, slowly back away, and Pearl wouldn't even notice. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of hoping for that. Like, they, they did such a great build on that. The suspense in that moment is is absolutely perfect. Uh, and I also wasn't, I didn't realize that she wouldn't have driven her home. I didn't realize she would have walked home with her. Yeah. So I was expecting her to get in the car, drive away. Um, spoiler alert, obviously, too. I didn't really expect that, I guess I didn't realize that that her husband that she was married to in X was the same guy she was married to originally. I figured she would have, you know, like he found out he was killed in the war and ended up marrying this other guy. And But so it killed me that when he came home and you see this look of horror on his face when with all the corpses around the table, that he just accepted it. <laughs> that was what blew me away. And then her... Her credit sequence look, where she just goes from smiling and happy to crying to happy again to trying to keep the brave face on. Still smiling the whole time. Yeah, it was just... Chilling. <laughs> yeah, she, oh, I, I, I actually want to see it again, and I can't wait to just be able to watch that monologue over and over and over again. So... Yeah. Utterly, utterly brilliant, and yeah, you know, just the the choices that that Ty West makes uh, throughout are just every, he makes every smart decision in building, and building, and building, and creating the idea that you know this person has a chance of, of escaping this, and then whether or not they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so good. In the scene with the alligator and oh. the dad, and I was just those I, little touches of menace early on are. are some of my favorite bits like you know the just the idea that she's taking a bath in front of her dad is so weird and strange and and transgressive uh that that, it, that makes it this that exciting and, and it's like it's an early communication like you already know she's nuts we this is the same character from x we're we're aware of all the things that are kind of with her but t- for it to have taken hold this young uh, for her to understand her own power in that way is fascinating and terrifying 
yeah, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, I'm like I said, I'm gonna keep. I'll I'll keep that monologue on loop like I do Francis Pugh, Florence Pugh's smile in Midsummer. <laughs> oh yeah, that is they they are more than equal. Absolutely, I, just I, now I can't wait to see them in a movie together. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, there's another. Uh, there's another one of the in this trilogy coming. I can't wait. Next I don't know scene. if it's still still this year or next year, but I think uh, it's probably next year. Probably, because... but they make these movies so quickly on such a small budget. Who knows? <laughs> well, we did Pearl like right after yeah. X, so there was the footage was there to do the trailer that showed at the end of X, which I wish I had stayed for. I had no idea, um, and. But I, I, I kind of got the impression from some of the stuff I've read that this Maxine, which is a sequel, it's like a carryover from her character, um, in X, I, I have a feeling that, that they didn't really realize that this was going to be such a big hit, that X was going to be such a big hit, and they could do the, you know, do the same with Pearl, and then have, you know, not being able to shoot it in New Zealand concurrently i'm assuming that's going to probably be next year mm. so it's phenomenal now uh, i was i'm uh, virtually covering uh, fantastic fest in austin texas uh, so i've got uh, virtual access there and i've been watching some stuff i started off though uh watching a pair of documentaries that i also did for uh i did for an interview um yeah uh we did for an interview i did for an interview uh this that are just now going up uh, with a couple of documentary directors. Uh, the first of which was a woman who directed a documentary on Stephen King on the movie screen. Uh, King on screen is what it's called, and uh, it opens with this like series of scenes that are just it. It is more Stephen King references than any person has ever put into a single three minute span. <laughs> Everything that happens in this span is is a reference to something in a Stephen King book or movie. Interesting. Yeah. I, so then it goes into just kind of going behind the scenes and examining the various things about Stephen King on the big screen and uh, talking about uh, you know all the movies that were made of it. Obviously, The Shining stands out, that story about he becomes sort of this vaunted figure for hating, being willing to openly hate Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and people become like, I'm worried about approaching Stephen King to, to make, you know, to see if I can make a movie of his stuff. But then you realize that he's like, this very charming, very giving, open guy who's really a great collaborator and not somebody you should be terrified of. Yeah, yeah. He's, I, I, I mean, I've always loved Stephen King. I love him on Twitter. I love him, you know, like, he's not a, he's kind of reached that age where he's just like, fuck it, I'm going to say whatever I want to say. And, you know, and he, his, instead of just through his storytelling, it's now just out there on Front Street, so... I'm looking forward to that. That is a it's a terrific documentary. Great stuff from Frank Darabont, who is a big part of the documentary and uh, has a lot of things to say about Shawshank and the Green Mile. And you, you get to see a little bit of the of the of the Tom Hanks that you think Tom Hanks is. You get to see that and go, "Yep, that's the Tom Hanks I want to see." <laughs> so Michael Clark Duncan has never really worked very much at this point in his career. When he does the Green Mile, he'd been recommended by Bruce Willis, who had never spoken. To, to Frank Darabont before and never spoke to him again. <laughs> but somehow got his phone number and recommended this guy for the role. 
but then he <laughs> he gets on the, on set and and he's doing a good job. But the thing that makes him so great in the several scenes that he has, uh, it, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, is the fact that every time he's talking to Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is actually there. He sits with him, and even though he's not in the in the screen. He's off screen. He's still giving him every inch to the point where Frank Darabont's going, Tom, can you save something for when I do the switch around? <laughs> Tom Hanks can probably probably handle the switch. <laughs> That's just such a wonderful picture of who we all think Tom Hanks is, the most generous human being. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there are certain actors that will do that, and then you know there are people who... They only show up when they have to shoot their scenes, and I think we all—I mean, we all know who they are—and and I, I, I'm not a he, like I don't go to a movie because Tom Hanks is in it, but that sounds exactly like how I imagine Tom Hanks to be. Yeah, I love that. There's a lot of there's a lot of stories like that in this movie about about the people who made the movies with Stephen King and about Stephen King reacting to those movies. Uh, then, of course, I also, uh, uh, another one that I watched is a documentary on the Chucky franchise and <laughs> Child's Play called Living with Chucky. And uh, I'm famously not a fan of the first film, which uh, makes sense because it's actually the worst of the group of, <laughs> of, of Child's Play movies. I would say the first one is probably the worst one. Now, I've not gone on to see at least three of the original five that were made, you know, not, not this most recent one with Mark Hamill, which is... Not necessarily something that was made with the original people. No. I, Don Mancini, it turns out, is like this amazing director who's, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a gay man who just entered into this place and, and people don't even give him his, his, you know, he created a franchise that he's been with the whole way yep. that is iconic and beloved and people don't give him any credit for being that guy. Exactly. And, that's one of the, this is one aspect of this brilliant documentary, which is made by a, a woman named Kira Gardner, whose dad, Don, uh, actually operated the Chucky puppet in the last two movies, uh, Cult and, and the one before Curse. that, Curse, uh, which are said to be two of the best of the Chucky movies that most people haven't seen. Well, the Curse was really good. <laughs> Cult was uh, different. Yeah. What I like about all the Chucky movies is the fact that they, he has kept the mythology of them and the camp aspect of them consistent throughout the series. So, you know, when they reboot with Curse of Chucky, it all ties into the original movie and the original, you know, couple movies to the point where characters come back that you're like, holy shit, I can't believe they brought them back or they were able to bring them back. Um... There's all in the Chucky TV series that's currently out. Same thing. It's true to everything. Um, I'm assuming that in the new one, Glenn or Glenda from Seed of Chucky will be back. I don't know. Yes, but, it's 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 guaranteed. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was the movie that everybody was kind of like, "Oh, what's going on here?" But it's really funny and just completely out of left field. Crazy, but, and and it's a rare. I mean, it's weird. It's a puppet, so it's weird to take it seriously. But they're taking a trans character in a movie seriously, yeah. like it, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, yeah. And the big queer aspect of it that she goes into a lot in the documentary, she gives that a big highlight. How that's how important that is. I thought that was really great, and uh, 
it does, it's, she just does an amazing job with this documentary of placing Chucky into a place where I can respect it. Where, you know, because again, I I don't care for that original film at all. I I I like it as a, but it it's it's nowhere near the camp that started you know encroaching, especially Bride of Chucky. That was just that has such a queer sensibility to it. With I mean Jennifer Tilly is queer icon obviously, but um, I I just see that what I love that he has stayed true to his vision for the entire series, and now with the TV series, you know where they're where they did that reboot with oh God Aubrey Plaza. What were you thinking? Um, that was for people who don't know Child's Play and Chucky and. The fact that they did it in the first place was kind of why it was it was why why not do you know a a soft reboot or something like they did with Curse why not you know add add to the mythology as opposed to making your own completely different toy rights issues for the most part I knew Don Mancini yeah. as the creator kind of had a, had this in his pocket a little bit and yeah. So they had to kind of change it enough and make it the same enough to, well, we own Child's Play, but you own Chucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was just, it was it was pointless, and Aubrey Plaza was wasted. I don't remember anybody else in the movie except for Mark Hamill's voice, and even yeah. that was like, he's a brilliant voice actor, but it was just... I didn't care. Yeah. I watched it. I watched everything happening, and I just... It was not my Chucky. NMC. Hashtag <laughs> but, Yeah. The documentary is incredible. It's playing at Fantastic Fest this weekend, and uh, a lot of people are going to get to see it and hopefully get to see it further after that. Uh, you know, it's a, it, she also just goes about making the whole thing seem very wholesome behind the scenes. Like, it's a family of people who've been doing this from the very beginning, and everybody has basically stayed that could, they could afford to keep. Uh, and, you know, then Fiona Dureff taking over from her dad and just being absolutely brilliant at it. Have you seen any of the Chucky series? No. She plays Charles Lee Ray <laughs> as Brad Dureff, and it's insane how good she is <laughs> like I legitimately I know that she, you know the material is not something that gets recognized obviously Pearl you know mm-hmm. that's never going to get recognized for Academy Awards when it should she, her, her acting was to me was Emmy worthy the way she took it over just the whole the whole thing was just brilliant yeah, she's great the documentary as well and they're all in it everybody who's part of uh, Child's Play, Chucky, they're all in it talking about it and talking about the place, its place in history and their place, their part of it and making the director part of it and she bringing her into it because her dad is, you know, operated Chucky. Nice. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, I, I think all the, all the Child's Play movies with this, with the exception of the remake, reboot, are worth watching for different reasons. So, I think you should get on board with watching (laughs) (laughs) 
So then I got into Fantastic Fest proper, which is uh, going actually onto their website and watching the films that they've, the, the I think, 12 films they've assigned for me. Uh, one of which is called Life on the Farm. Have you ever heard of Life on the Farm? No. So there's this guy, his last name is Carson, and he <laughs> became the sort of viral hit in the 80s, <laughs> like all the way back in the 80s, passing around videotapes of himself at his farm. He loved making tapes of him hanging out at his farm with his cows and his mom and it seems all kind of strange and wholesome. It's this old guy, and he's kind of charming. He's charismatic, you know, and he's editing, and he's doing all these, he's making real, like, movies that he's giving to his family members and giving them out as Christmas gifts, and so interesting stuff. Then they get fucking weird (laughs) because, like, his mom dies, and his first instinct is to get the camera and go, and he's got these little captions that he's, paper captions that he's put up... (laughs) Put on his mom. Mom Myrtle Carson passed away today, and this is her corpse right here. This is mom saying goodbye to the cows. (laughs) Mom's corpse in a chair with the cows saying goodbye. (laughs) It just builds and builds and builds to this, and it's amazing. It's an amazing documentary to the point where I kind of choked up at the end. What in the end game? Jeffrey Dahmer bullshit is that. Well, it's basically <laughs> called death positivity. Like, he he did the same thing when his dad passed. He, you know, dad passed today. Here's his, here's his corpse laying in bed. There is one thing. It is one thing to write a Facebook post celebrating your parent <laughs> when they pass away. And you say, you know what? My dad was a great guy. You know, I'm glad to have known him, all that. It is quite a different thing to prop up his body and say goodbye to your fucking cows. <laughs> now I have to watch this. You have to watch this because it's fucking brilliant. It was, it was, it's essentially found footage. Like, the, uh, a guy, his, his, he remembered watching this when he was a kid because he lived in the neighborhood where this guy was and he delivered tapes to everybody around town. And by the time he got around to... You know, whatever happened to that, most people had gotten rid of the tapes. Like, they had no reason to keep them. There was this weird guy. The guy, end of his life was pretty sad. So, you know, there's no reason to have this around. Plus, who has VCRs anymore? But they find it. Somebody found it and put it on YouTube, just a piece of it. And he had, he finds he's got this whole big tape of it. (laughs) And builds an entire documentary around it. He's talking to, you know, the found footage people who love the VHS found footage, which is something I love to do. I would love to do that. If I had a VCR that could work, I would totally go looking for just weird ass shit. Oh, you can find them at garage sales. (laughs) There's always VCRs at garage sales. And as well as every... Disney videotape you've ever wanted to own. Everybody's trying to sell them right now. <laughs> Go get yourself a VCR. Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's an incredible documentary. And, and like I said, I actually like got teary-eyed at the end. Like It's kind of beautiful. Um, <laughs> it sounds <laughs> chilling. It does. <laughs> it, and it, and it kind of is in a way. But like, there's a scene where he's talking about all these cats that live on his farm. He's got a bunch of cats, and he loves all his cats. He's given all of his cats names. And he's got... He's got this whole setup in his living room that's his, you know, he's got his camera set up with a roaring fire, and he doesn't usually have a chair here, but today he's got a chair here, and there's a cat laying on the chair, looks like it's sleeping. No, it's dead. It's dead. (laughs) It's dead. And he picks it up and says, he's dead today. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) 
I, so I went to high school with somebody who I could absolutely 100% picture doing this <laughs> if he didn't have siblings who would stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very sad because he didn't get to do it for his brother Frank because his brother Frank died in the hospital so he couldn't put him on camera. But I think he did get a still photo of his dead body. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's death positivity. Yeah, again... <laughs> I'm positive they're dead, but I don't have to videotape them to prove it. Good God. Yeah. But his, his voiceovers are just this happy, charming, like he, he keeps it in his stiff upper lip, England, you know, just continue. Mom died oh, today. This was in England? Yeah. Oh, you should have read with that. <laughs> if you'd led with that, I'd be like, oh, this is just normal English behavior. <laughs> I mean, look how long they carted around this dead queen for two weeks. <laughs> Sorry to any of my British listeners who may be offended by that, but where is the lie? Oh, the queen. I love the queen. She's, so, she's such, a, such a figure, isn't she? She certainly was a figure. <laughs> a figure for colonialism. I mean, well. Necessary is what she was. <laughs> very, very necessary. So I also watched a couple other things at uh, Fantastic Fest. There were uh, just, I mean, again, all of it's been kind of weird and interesting at the least, and some of it's pretty great. But I watched a movie called uh, All Jacked Up and Full of Worms. I have heard of this, but I don't know anything about it. So the idea here is that a drug addict is uh, given a box, uh, given this thing full of worms that he's told are like have psychotropic powers if you eat them. And there's a serial killer who's just murdering people and ripping out their guts while he's eating worms. And uh, he and his girlfriend are just chowing down on worms and cutting people open and ripping out their intestines. And all very inventive, all very gory. I'm not sure what the point of it is. I guess the gore itself is kind of the point. It just kind of it just kind of goes on like that. Very big trippy sequences of people eating worms. And then people being disemboweled. It's like the gritty reboot of How to Eat Fried Worms. <laughs> one of your kids. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> Obviously what it sounds like. Great title. I mean, it's an eye-catching title. That's why I had to watch it first. <laughs> I, I... What? I went back to Pearl. No. <laughs> There is something weirdly though, transgressive and uh, eye-catching about somebody just eating worms. I mean, yeah, not something that I necessarily wanted to watch, but transgressive, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make you seem like the normal one. <laughs> like you're, I'm pushing you towards normcore. This I'm is great. I'm sure I, I... <laughs> Just because I like horror movies a lot doesn't mean that I'm not a completely normie. Doesn't like dead bodies, doesn't like worms. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't like dead bodies. Like, I'm, very few people I know do. Yeah. Uh, that I know people that do should kind of scare you. Um, it scares me a little bit. Um, I, you know, like I just, I finished the Dahmer miniseries on Netflix today and it, there are parts of it that are very graphic, but it's also very well done. But it got me to thinking, I'm like, 
how do you get to the place where you really have skulls and you're eating biceps and all this stuff? Where do you, how do you get to that place? I am not that person, although everybody thought I was going to be that person <laughs> when I was a teenager. <laughs> Fun fact, I did a, I, for psychology class in high school, we were supposed to do a report on like some abnormal psychology thing. I chose John Wayne Gacy, mm-hmm. and I went to the I went to the library, and I got a, a book called Buried Dreams, which I've read as an adult as well. Uh, you know, and after plagiarizing half of that for my psychology report, just kidding, I would never do something like that in high school. <laughs> uh, the I took it back to the I I renewed it at the library, took it back, and the librarian told me she thought I was weird, and then she started telling people that I was going to. Uh, probably be a serial killer someday because I liked this book so much I le- I kept it out past the two weeks. <laughs> well, my parents didn't really like hearing this secondhand, so they went after her and said it was for a psychology report, and I never lived that down, though. There were people who thought I was going to become a serial killer. Little do they know, I can't even stand the sight of my own blood <laughs> most of the time. I think the story that fascinates me the most is, uh, is it Arwen Mewes, the German guy? He, he went on a cannibal forum, and he saw people who would like to be eaten. Oh, yeah. Okay, I didn't know his name, but yeah, I know who you're... Armin Mewes, yeah. Uh, he <laughs> posted on a forum about how he would like to, somebody to volunteer to be eaten, and somebody did. And it created this situation in Germany where they're like... Well, the guy did volunteer. Like, is this really murder? <laughs> well, he, I mean, he, he bit his penis off and let him bleed to death in his bathtub. Well, yeah. I mean, did you see the movie Fresh? It sounds With Sebastian Stan. Oh, no, no. Oh, okay. It was actually very inventive and very fun, but the premise of it has to do with cannibalism. And people still being able to technically live if part of them was eaten is into that. So, I mean, you know, to each their own. Uh, <laughs> but. I'm just fascinated by by the day-to-day life, though, of, like, you know, you just he cuts up the body, he puts, puts it into, like, plastic boxes and puts it in the fridge and pulls it out, you know, the next day for, like, you know, I'm going to take, take a piece of thigh to work. Yeah, yeah I mean... <laughs> Well, you know that um, cannibals call humans long pig. <laughs> I did not know that. Now you do. <laughs> now you do. <laughs> yeah. We're, what were we talking about here? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> talking about don't worry, darling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, don't worry, darling stars uh, Florence Pugh, directed by Olivia Wilde, and is set in a sort of... 50s uh, satire world where everything is perfectly manicured, perfect lawns, perfect rows of homes. Very Eisenhower 50s in terms of like the way people want to remember it, not as it actually was. Uh, into this are Florence Pugh and uh, as Alice, of course, because you have to name this character Alice given what the story is. And uh, her husband Jack, played by Harry Styles, uh, 
and basically, you know, if you're going to create a perfect simulacrum, obviously somebody is going to be the character who starts to see things to fall apart, and that's where Alice comes in, where she has an encounter with a former friend played by Kiki Lane, who kind of opens her eyes to, not everything's perfect here, I thought everything was supposed to be perfect here, and that's such a great idea right off the bat, you know, just the way that that kind of creation, the way you create like this perfect scenario, this perfect society, how does anybody know, how would you know something was perfect if it was perfect all the time? And like the mind, it's the, the it's that, I, there's that scene in the matrix where uh, agent Smith is talking to Morpheus and he says to him, you know, the first matrix we created was perfect. It took care of everybody's needs and everybody went insane within months. <laughs> because if everything's perfect, how does the mind goes, your imagination just start to go looking for something yeah. to do, you know? Well, I mean, it makes the, there's no highs or lows. Yeah. There's just, uh, there's no win without loss. Yeah. There's no, you know, that's that you have to have good and evil. Yeah. It has to exist. If you create perfection, it just doesn't work. Uh, participation trophy of life. <laughs> you live great. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the that that idea is great and it's set up well, but they don't follow through on that, and they don't full, follow through on a lot of ideas in this movie. Unfortunately, uh, the idea, I guess, overall is to kind of take on, uh, according to what Olivia Wilde has said, and I don't think this is well communicated in the movie. That there's a character played by Chris Pine. He's named Frank. He's the controller of this place they call Victory, and he operates the Victory Project, which is the company that all the men work for. And he is essentially supposed to be Jordan Peterson. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Uncontrollable gag reflex. Whenever you hear Jordan Peterson or you hear somebody trying to do something with Jordan Peterson. Just him. I mean, it's just, he's just such, oh God, he's a victim. And, you know, it's like liberals are snowflakes until you say, oh, a woman should get paid what a man gets paid. And then they have a fucking meltdown. And that's Jordan Peterson. <laughs> he cries about everything, but he wants to be an elf. I just, I, I, dude. Anyway, he's Chris a pine. <laughs> he's a grifter. Peterson oh, totally. is a grifter. He doesn't believe half of the things that he says. He totally. he, he found himself uh, a comfortable niche that can make him some money, and that's really what he is. Uh, and you can see that in any interview that he does, is that he tries to believe in all these things, and he goes along and says, you know, the shitty things that he knows will get a pop out of the <laughs> the audience that he wants. And it's the any attention is good attention. Exactly. And that's why the Chris Pine thing doesn't work. Because essentially what Chris Pine is playing in Don't Worry Darling is who Jordan Peterson thinks that he is and the society that he thinks he can create or the people who like Jordan Peterson. He doesn't have that. But, like, the people who like Jordan Peterson think that he can take us back to this. Yeah. This level of perfection where women are home every day doing, you know, the, the, when I come home, my my wife greets me at the door with a martini in one hand and, a, and on her knees with a blowjob. Like, that's yeah. the life that Jordan Peterson's going to lead us back to. And this movie provides a character who is that Jordan Peterson who is doing exactly that thing. And it's like, no, that's not a satire. You're just, you're, you're giving him a blowjob. <laughs> yeah. He's played by Chris fucking Pine. Like, that's how Jordan Peterson, if he were a real person uh, who believed what he believed, that's how he'd like to see himself is Chris Pine. So I think that um, we'll have, to, in order to talk about that. Spoilers. We're going to have to do like a spoiler alert. So All right. Just 
fast forward. Spoiler alert for Dar- Don't Worry Darling. Come uh, back in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, although the consensus be- consensus on the internet is, I'm not going to see it, but it's terrible. <laughs> anyway. Um, it's not terrible. No, it's, it's not. It, no. It's a great-looking movie with a lot of really great ideas. The people who aren't going to see it call it terrible yeah. because they think it's the Stepford Wives, which I thought it was honestly going to be when I saw the trailer. And there's there's elements of that. Yeah. However, what I'm guessing, because they they do show Harry Styles after they figure out, you know, after they show us the flashbacks to show us who he really is, he goes from, you know, just kind of this perfect 50s gentleman to this modern-day kind of idiot whose wife, Florence Pugh, does all the work and comes back. And the simulation yeah. is an internet scenario, essentially, yeah. where they've created this perfect world that you've kidnapped the woman that you want and you keep her under sedation with and in this thing, in this simulation all the time. They, you know, they give them... Uh, brain treatments and you know make them believe that this is the real world and, and it's all playing out in front of them with these little eye implant things. so everything seems real to them but they're actually laying in a bed by themselves and locked away but what what got me was the fact that in the there looked like there was a first simulation and then this was the this next level that they all went to because they realized that if you know if if he were to kidnap Florence Pugh and turn her into Alice who was a surgeon and he realized that in this simulation she's got a great job but she's too tired to cater to his every need (laughs) and then they go back to the original him where I literally thought it was Evan Peters playing him because he looked so much like him I had to check IMDB to make sure it wasn't Evan Peters playing Harry Styles and playing Harry Styles the layers Um, (laughs) but you find out that and since you never see Chris Pine as the original, because he's just a voice on a computer, mm-hmm. telling them to he do this. He hosts a podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, Men's rights activist. Right. But you never see the original him, so you can imagine that he looks something like schlubby Jordan Peterson. But he imagines himself as Chris Pine. That's kind of where I got mm-hmm. where I got that. Because Harry Styles, in real life, quote unquote, looks like Evan Peters and Dahmer, or he, well, he looks or, like a, he looks like an incel. Yeah, he looks like yeah. he, he's got a scraggly beard and long hair, and you're kind of like, well, why would Florence Pugh ever marry, marry a guy like that? Yeah. Eh, because he looks like it, if if Harry Styles took a shower, he would <laughs> he could get rid he could get rid of this guy and he'd be Harry Styles. Like it makes sense that yeah. she just with him. So like if Evan Peters wasn't being <laughs> but again, by that's another aspect of, this, yeah. of the satire that doesn't work because. He's still Harry Styles. He's Harry right. Styles with a scraggly beard and long hair. He's still Harry Styles. That's how an incel would like to see themselves yeah. as Harry Styles. So what is the satire? You're giving them what they want, and this ending then doesn't give them the ending that they deserve. Why don't you... And, and the fact is that she's married to the Harry Styles character in real life as well. No. That's what I'm talking about with the different... Uh, levels. See, I didn't see. I didn't catch what you're talking so, about here. So okay, so in in when you when they when you realize that's a simulation, and she's a surgeon and she comes back, that's also a simulation, because he looks normal. He looks like Harry Styles in that one. That's the scraggly beard and long hair. No, he not the super. Not the what mm-hmm. I, what I got was that was a simulation that they tried where. 
she has a great job, and then he's like still he doesn't have to do anything. She takes care of him, but then you notice that he doesn't look as bad in that one as he does when you go back to the original where they're laying in bed next to each other. Hmm. I'm so. not sure. I, I'm not sure about that. I didn't get that impression because the impression that I got is that that what her in the bed and her in the, as a doctor that's the real world. Oh no, I t- I I didn't get that at all. I thought that she was made to be simulated as a doctor and then that didn't work out so they switched to this one. Hmm, yeah, so I, yeah. I, I I think she's a real I think she's actually a doctor. I think that's what the life she realizes that she wants to go back to is hey, I had a great life where I was a doctor. So yeah, I mean, I think that's. I, I would think have that to see it again. Real... I'm not looking forward to seeing it again until it comes out. I'm pretty sure that's the real world, uh, and I think time passes between the other first, when they first fell in love, and he's kind of still taking care of himself. He starts listening to the podcast and becoming obsessed uh, okay. and staying home, and you know becomes more and more depressed about her not having time for him and catering to all his needs while he's listening to this men's rights podcast all the time. That's the real world, and the time progression is why he starts to look kind of run down uh and <laughs> okay i i and it was i think it was a mistake in the editing oh yeah because this yeah was, again there's a lot of there's a lot of mistakes here that that don't that don't get to it with the biggest mistake is the ending like it, that's arguably the biggest mistake because they don't they don't resolve that they don't resolve the ending they don't take her back to the real world like they, we don't actually yeah. ever see her, hear her in the real world we hear her coming too mm-hmm um, you know, it seems like she might be dying or she might die in in this life. And then when Don't Worry Baby or Don't Worry Darling, sorry, it should be called Don't Worry, comma, Baby. Uh, <laughs> but when that comes up on the screen, you hear her go, <gasps> mm-hmm. you know, like she's like, wake, she's completely woken up as opposed to just like fragmented reality. Yeah. So... And it's very confusing. Like, there are people chasing... Like, here you have this big movie that's all about this massive simulation, and it and it's got all these big, pretentious ideas to it that it's exploring but not quite getting all of. And it ends in a car chase and a foot chase. I'm like, really? Come well, on, man. See, I didn't... I, <laughs> like, the least inventive way you could end, end this. I didn't think it was... I, th- I thought that was fine because it's... It's because this film is about, you know, women overcoming men who are toxic and, mm-hmm. you know, incels and all that. I could, the men coming after her was fine yeah. for me because that's just, that's how. But who are the red jumpsuit guys? I, I think <laughs> they're, they're put in the simulation in order to be someone to be afraid of. Hmm. So that you don't speak out like she does. You know, I think the threat of them being there is always, it's kind of always present to the women. And they realize that if, if they do come, if they do come after Chris Pine's character, then these men will come after her like they do Mm -hmm. in the simulation. And I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what the real world equivalent for them would be. In this, but mm-hmm. I don't think it matters. I didn't. I didn't really try to pick it apart as yeah. much. Um, I have talked to a couple people who were like, "Well, it's just you know, it's kind of a masochistic matrix." And I was like, "Well, I there were things that I, I wished going into it. Um, I I would have actually been fine if it had been a Stepford Wives remake. I think you know that movie 
if you do a um, a straight ahead remake of it instead of a satirical kind of tongue in cheek one like they did earlier, mm-hmm. um, would be fine. I also kind of wish that instead of this being a simulation, it actually was taking place in the fifties, and they couldn't um, they couldn't talk about what the Victory Project was because they were building domestic terror atomic bombs and she was the only person who could stop them from unleashing them and starting a civil war helter-skelter kind of thing. Instead, that really didn't make much sense and didn't have any kind of payoff. Like the, Throughout the movie, there are these explosions going on. They're rocking entire houses, and you, you know, it's got something to do with the Victory Project, and it's like, what, is that just him getting off the bed? What? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know... <laughs> What is it? What is what is this uh, supposed to be? They have explosive diarrhea while they're in bed. And it, what's that? What does that smell? If you vomit in the thing, you're vomiting the real world, right? That's I, another aspect that doesn't work. Also, is like if you uh, if you die in the simulation, you die for real. But she doesn't, or the the men do, but the women don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I <laughs> again, a lot of half finished ideas here. Right, I think it had it, it did have some really good ideas, it but does. I really the execution of it wasn't what I wanted necessarily. Um, I I could watch Florence Pugh do anything. Literally, she's, she's amazing. I think Olivia Wilde's performance is great. I yeah. think her direction is solid. You know, in terms of the the look of the film is great. Yeah, it's but I think fantastic. her character though, I think her character is great, and the revelation at the end that. She wants to be here because that's the only way her dead children can be with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this twist should have happened halfway through instead of 20 minutes before the end of a two and a half hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, you know, how do I wake the rest of these women up? How do I, how do we band together and escape from, from our yeah. prisons of, you know, just being drugged? How do we all do this? Um, one of the big criticisms I've been reading was, well, what happened to the other women? And I was like, well, I, I just extrapolated from what I saw on screen that they all woke up, or you know, Florence Pugh. I assumed they were. I, th- I assumed it as was as a sequel tease. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think you're going to get Florence well, Pugh. Well, it, it finished number one at the box office. Yeah. Um, I, I, I took that as a sequel tease. Like, she's going to wake up from this and then go go looking for, you know... Now, obviously not Chris Pine. His character dies. But for some reason, his wife, Gemma Chan, wants to keep this going. Even though that's... Again, her whole thing is completely inexplicable. Yeah. Uh, what what she does, why she does it. She's, she's It seems like there's an edit where she's... Where she was cut out to make, <laughs> to make time. And they needed to add her back in to make her make sense. Yeah, I think... Um you know, when she kind of tells Florence Pugh to be careful in the one scene, you know, right in the middle of the movie, that that makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. when, after she kills Chris Pine's character that, it, oh, okay, she wants the control. Mm-hmm. And is it one of those things where we take, a, we take away the men's rights activists forum but it morphs into the same thing with women. Is that something to explore, or not? That I think that you know that's necessarily valid. I mean, you could do this with her just just being greedy, like she wants. Yeah. You know, he's he's 
she thinks she kills Chris Pine because he's failed and it's going to cost them this empire that they've created, but they don't establish the empire aspect. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Are, what does their empire actually look like outside of the simulation? You know, are they, are they, since they're part of the simulation, one would assume that they are asleep for, you know, with the eye implants and whatever, mm-hmm. but, you know, would they have to be? I don't know. You know, I'm sure, you know, they're probably charging these guys thousands of dollars to get these this equipment and the drugs and all that. So, of course, they're probably... Well, I mean, it's essentially it. like they're operating an incel forum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> an incel multi-level, multi-level marketing. Exactly. Which is a great idea. It's yeah. a great idea. It's a great idea. I just don't think this movie drills down on it enough. Yeah. It doesn't have enough... It, it spends so much time establishing that idea that it doesn't actually get into actually satirizing that idea. Right. Because uh, I want to, you know, I want to make fun of these guys. I want to see, you know, I thought it would be much more bold for for Chris, for, for, uh, Chris, for uh, Jack, uh, for Jack, the character Jack, uh, uh, to have kidnapped Florence Pugh's character and took her hostage and put her in the simulation and convinced her that he was his wife. That would have been more interesting to me than them already being married. See, that's what I thought happened. Yeah. I thought he kidnapped her, put her in the simulation of them being a happy married couple, Mm -hmm. and then that didn't work out, so they went to the next level, which was this 50s Palm Springs-looking utopia. Well, looking, because it was filmed in Palm Springs. (laughs) I I thought that, that that's a good idea, but again, like... I don't think they've can't. They, I don't think they went through on that. And if, if, even if that is maybe that is what they did, they failed miserably in layering it to a way where everybody got that idea. Yeah, but also they like they don't like I said the Jordan Peterson thing doesn't land at all. You, you've not landed a punch on this guy. He, he's just you've just portrayed him as he'd like to see himself, well, or as they'd like to see him. I think that. The whole Jordan Peterson thing, if they could, if they just, you know, a couple drop lines or something, you know, how, oh, you're not, you're not who you say you are. You know, you're just this, you're probably, you know, just a poor schlub who is grifting all these stupid idiot guys. And that's why I wish that the twist had happened halfway through and she figured it out, but she had to escape. And, you know, there's no real escape. So how do we, you know, how do we get out of it on our own? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would have liked to have seen her, you know, her hand twitching or something at, towards the end and coming up and grabbing one of the eye things. Yeah. Either the clockwork orange scanner things and just ripping it off and then, you know, like being able to rip the second one off and then going and finding these women. Were they living in different apartments around the country? Were they all in one apartment building? That's something I would have liked to have known because that would have made more sense. If they're all in one place, I, I yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of way that it can go, but I think they spent so much time just kind of establishing the world. And I think what Olivia Wilde really was enjoying more than anything was establishing that world and the perfect simulation that she created. Another aspect of this that I want to talk about are the moments where Florence Pugh almost dies or is menaced by her thoughts. One begins with her just, she's making eggs, and she picks up an egg out of a carton and just crushes it in her hand and 
It's just there's nothing inside of it. It's empty. And she does this a few times and just is smashing it. And then suddenly she wakes up and they're all, all the eggs are fine. Uh, another one where she's cleaning a window. And as she does this, she starts to see something on the window. She's kind of scratching at it. And suddenly the window is pushing her back against the wall. The wall's pushing yeah, and, and she's, against her. Yeah. yeah. And then she wakes up and she's fine. And uh, then the last one is her. She just She's putting lunch away. She's wrapping it up with plastic wrap. And then suddenly she just starts wrapping plastic wrap around her own head before just tearing it off and being fine. Why did any of this happen? Well, I mean, if you're likening it to the Matrix, it's a glitch. You know, it's one of those things where we know based on the fact that she saw Margaret kill herself. We know that because Margaret keeps coming to her in visions that she's our character who's going to see through everything. But I think it's just kind of moments of like wakefulness where she she's supposed to in her mind, you know, being drugged and in this. With a scanner, she's supposed to be preparing the perfect breakfast. So she's cracking eggs, but then because of the fact that it's not, it's a simulation, she cracks it and nothing is inside. I mean, it's kind of like she, there's nothing inside her. And I think that's kind of the way I took it was mm-hmm. she's just, this is kind of a shell like she is with nothing inside of it. And why isn't there anything inside of it? Why why am I an empty vessel now? You know, also, was he going down on her while she was asleep <laughs> with this thing on? Or was that just part of the simulation? Or because that is some rapey McRake pace yeah. stuff. It's oh. <laughs> a, a funny aspect of it, too. It's like that's because that's the thing that incels refuse to do. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do your research on incels, okay? <laughs> well, but, I mean, I know that there were there were little bits that, you know, like the aggressive cunnilingus that was happening several times in this movie was like, does he wish he could do this and he just can't? <laughs> uh-huh. Or is this just... I took it as... I took it as this is what he thinks she wants. I took it as this is something because she does have, you know, like, it's catering to her needs, too, Mm -hmm. that this is what she likes, but he's an incel, so he's not getting a blowjob. And that's the thing, like, the the mixed message there, the mixed idea is just not not working. Like, you... it needed to be a little bit more oppressive. They needed to be a little bit more toxic in terms of their masculinity. I thought that to really, and not saying that every point needs to be underlined, but it's not underlined at all. There's zero underline. And you're just having to kind of guess that maybe that's what they're going for, but it might not be what they're going for. Yeah. And that, the the vagary of this movie really is what sinks it. That's why I said in my review in the, in the title, it's nearly great. Cause I think there is, it's near greatness. There are just a couple of things you could change to make this a really great movie yeah I, I i i mean first of all florence Pugh. second of all the the uh mid-century modern decor and setting and you know the perfection of all that i was really looking forward to it and then i've heard you know i heard some reviews a friend of mine saw it at a screening a week before and was it's like it's not good and I was just like, but I want it to be really good. And I, I, I thought it was good, not great. I would say, like, if I was doing out of 10, I would say, like, a 6.5. Mm-hmm. Although, the other day, I was sitting and I was reading some of the comments under one of their ads that was playing on Twitter. And it just, 
having to defend it after I saw it, I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. It wasn't as bad. You didn't. You're not even going to see the movie, but you're saying how bad it is. So it made me like it a little more. Yeah. Um, picking it apart, the threads really do unravel, but I think that they have. It's just enough there mm-hmm. to recommend it. You know, not if you're if you're somebody who's like, I only go to see one movie a month. That wouldn't be the movie. I would say go see Pearl, even if you're not a horror fan, because it's more of a character study than a horror movie. But it's just good enough that I think it'll probably have a good shelf life on like VOD and things like that. So it's great to talk about. It's a great movie to oh, talk yeah. about. It definitely invites a lot of conversation, and I'm I'm glad that it does. I just wish those ideas had been flushed out a little bit better. Uh, when it spends so much time, uh, it's just too much time establishing how perfect this universe is and and underlining that the look of the movie too much and not enough time underlining those ideas and making sure that they're communicating them as clearly as they can what, what the intention is. I kind of feel like if this had been Olivia Wilde's third movie or fourth mm. instead of her second, yeah. I think she would have you know had a little better grasp on it. Um, I think she's a good director. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, no question. Regardless of all the behind-the-scenes stuff that... The nonsense that everybody keeps talking that, about. That doesn't, that's that all people matter. give a shit about. I, I think she's very competent. I think that this movie would have been better served by her down the line. Or maybe, you know, maybe somebody, you know, maybe a different director, but she was good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the... the Overall direction of the movie, I thought was pretty good, but there were parts where I think it was just kind of like, "Oh my god, wouldn't this be cool?" And they so they just put it in the screenplay. "Oh my god, wouldn't this be cool? Let's add this. Let's add this. Let's add the imagery." And some of the imagery didn't really necessarily make sense mm-hmm. to the story, not right. just in general, because there, you know, like with Midsommar, there are things in that movie that, if you're looking at them, they don't necessarily make sense. But as part of the story, they do. This one was kind of the opposite. So, there's a wonderful visual filmmaking. There's a tiny little uh, child's airplane that plays a role throughout the movie, and uh, just in little ways, whether it's where you see it, where you see the mom holding it, where you see it in the desert, you see a plane crash, like uh, these little things, these little touches that. Uh, great visual filmmaking. They tell you what it's communicating something that is not. You know, this is a toy plane. <laughs> That's great visual filmmaking, but it just, it's not enough of that. Yeah. I mean, this could, some of the visuals in this, this could be like an almost silent movie. Hmm. You know, you wouldn't necessarily need to see all the, or hear all the stuff. You could just, it could have, it could have worked as a silent movie. Yeah. For a lot of, in a lot of places. I would almost want to see like a more avant garde version of this idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More, something more experimental. By somebody who is a little more seasoned mm-hmm. as a director, I yeah. think. Uh, you know, I, like I said, Booksmart was great. I think I she it. directed love the it. fuck out of that movie. That's a great movie. Um, but is she the person to tell this kind of story? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, partially. I, you know. I enjoyed it enough that I will probably watch it again, if nothing else, for Florence Pugh. Uh, a friend of mine told me that... The movie was camp, but nobody told Florence Pugh. Mm. So she was acting the movie, not the camp. Yeah. Whereas Gemma Chan was, she acted the camp part of it. So. I can see that. 
to a point. Yeah. If Gemma Chan had more screen time. Right. If she had a bigger role, <laughs> it could have, you know. But I think that, you know, nobody told Florence Pugh that this was a camp movie. This was supposed to be like, you know, almost a Stepford Wives remake, but not quite. I don't know. I don't know. If you if you have a problem with this movie without seeing it, you need to examine your life. Yeah. Uh, you need to, there's something there's something wrong with you. This has nothing to do with you. Jason Sudeikis isn't your friend and doesn't need you to defend him. <laughs> he doesn't know you. He doesn't want you to defend him. I don't know him. I never talked to him. I'm just assuming that he doesn't care what you think. And Harry Styles <laughs> is never going to have sex with him, <laughs> no matter how much you defend him. <laughs> These are not your friends. <laughs> Although me and Florence Pierre completely could be best friends. <laughs> hey Flo, call me. <laughs> Just read up on parasocial relationships and you know, kind of come to a better understanding of who you are and they are. Exactly. Now, uh, let's talk about Avatar. The number three movie in America this week made $10 million in its return, which means pretty good things, I would say, for the Avatar sequel. Um, that's because people really miss Fern Gully. <laughs> I had to watch... So, years ago, I worked... When I lived in New York, I worked at Best Buy, and I worked in their Magnolia section where all the high-end TVs with all the great colors and sound and everything are. And we had to have Avatar on repeat all day long, every day of the week. I got so sick of Avatar that I swore to God I was never going to see it again. I was never going to see the sequels. Uh, they handed us, they gave us copies, and I have it on my Voodoo right now. But I couldn't tell you if I've ever watched it since they gave it to us because of the fact that I had to watch the same scene over and over and over and over and over and over. Is it where he plugs his hair into the flying horse? Yes, it is. <laughs> Why, why Why? that idea? Why settle on the idea that they have a long braid of hair and they have to put that inside their horse in order to fly it? Because why is that an idea? everything in the universe works together, Tom. <laughs> everything is symbiotic. And if we could just learn that we're all the same and we all exist as one being on this earth... I need to do this Pandora. weirdly phallic thing where it seems like I'm fucking this horse with my hair. Plug your hair into the horse, Sean. <laughs> I wouldn't be in the room where he, think, where he thinks, you know what would be great? When they get on the horse, they have to pull that long braid of hair and put that inside the horse to connect them. Can it just be an emotional connection? Like, this is my horse and my fl- fucking flying horse, and we know each other. We have, a, like, a, an emotional relationship. It has to be I have to stick myself inside the horse. I, why not just... These are beings that have, you know, like, empathy, and you can... And it's some sort of telekinetic empathy that you get you get on the horse and it bonds with you or it doesn't bond with you and you find the one that bonds with you and no we have yeah, to imprint like Jacob on the baby oh god <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna fuck that baby one day oh my you god <laughs> that Twilight sorry folks yeah, that, Twilight that, that baby in that Twilight movie <laughs> is a meme now and I am here for it <laughs> My friend Raquel and I, we swap 
Twilight but, baby memes. <laughs> I'm so glad that replaced the American Sniper baby. <laughs> God, maybe they'll go on the road together. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> man. Back to Avatar, because it's hard to concentrate on Avatar. Yes. Um, <laughs> the dumbest idea of the whole movie, and I'm not going to bother recapping the plot of Avatar. If you haven't seen Avatar, you know, why bother? Why bother? It's the biggest movie of all time. Um, it was the biggest movie of all time. It's not anymore. But <laughs> the dumbest idea in the whole movie, in, and why nobody calls James Cameron on this, bothers me to no end. Unobtainium. <laughs> like, you, you know there's only one way this happened. He wrote that in the original first draft of the screenplay and said to himself, I'll go back and change it eventually, and then didn't. Totally <laughs> forgot about it. <laughs> he gets on set that day, he's like, Unobtainium. Oh, oh, shit, we can't change it now. <laughs> well, I've already learned all my lines, Jim. I don't know what you want me to say. I'm going to say Unobtainium. It's just going to come out. <laughs> That's Sigourney Weaver, by the way. <laughs> that is the dumbest thing. How do we let him get away with that? Because he's James Cameron, <laughs> and he did Titanic and The Terminator, and we can't talk bad about him, or he'll take a sandbox and go home. Well, please Not the toys out of the sandbox. He'll take a whole sandbox. Go home. I don't need James Cameron at all. He is worse than Robert Zemeckis in that idea that I don't need actors. I don't need them. Fuck them. I don't need. I don't need actual human beings. I can just play with my toys. No, 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 no. Human beings are why we watch movies. <laughs> Other people, Sorry. things that we connect to on an emotional level. That's why we watch movies. Uh, it can be an animated person, but it has to be something that we can emotionally connect to. Yeah, it has a voice and whatnot. Like, you didn't. You didn't in the Terminator. You didn't like. <laughs> Sympathize with Kyle Reese, you sympathize with Sarah Connor. Yeah. Because she was a real person. Exactly. She didn't come from the future. She was just a waitress. On top of which, the, the, I, I, love, I love the idea of doing something in honor of Native Americans in a way that you know, tries to sneak it past the people who would be obviously racist towards that. Because that's what this is. It's a Trojan horse way of honoring like, the ideas of Native Americans. But it's also so condescending to the idea of who Native Americans are that it comes around and becomes insulting. If you were too racist to like Dances with Wolves... <laughs> Have I got the movie for you? <laughs> blue aliens? What the hell is with the blue alien? <laughs> I can't think of a word I want to call them. <laughs> well, uh, is that what the blue line on my flag means? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's it like I say. It just it goes so far the other direction to come around and become condescending and insulting to who they are. I'll take all of your philosophy and and make it you know into something mainstream and saleable. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> what I think is your philosophy. What people have told me your philosophy is. Right. I think that James Cameron has all these big ideas, and some of them are much better than others. You know. Coming up with the Terminator, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. In most hands, it's not, but it's a brilliant idea. I, I came from the future to save you in the past from the killer who's come to kill you in the past. Mm-hmm. This is just, I just, I don't, I get that it was 3D, and that was like the kickoff to the 
last 3D craze. I get that it was visually stunning. It's a great cartoon. Um, the Stephen Lang's character is just so snidely whiplash. He's just like one note. Just one if he note. had a mustache, yeah. he why doesn't he have a mustache to twirl? <laughs> you know why? Why isn't he like tying what's her face down to the tracks? You know, oh, because I don't have tracks on Pandora, but <laughs> you know, it's that that's the kind of character he is, and it's just. So one note. uh, It's all first draft. All first draft characters. These are all first draft characters. Um, I can only write the first draft because it's going to take me three years to make this goddamn movie. (laughs) It's the technology. That's all he cares about. That's really all he cares about. That and and base and very base liberalism. That's it. Just like the basis of liberalism. Like the the whole tree, the nine eleven tree. (laughs) (laughs) They've got to protect the nine eleven tree. But this time, the white guys are the terrorists trying to tear it down. Well, yeah. But it's an, it was their fault that it got attacked in the first place. <laughs> it's very... <sighs> muddled. It's muddled. The, the, the whole yeah. thing is very muddled. It's like you could make, a, you could make a, an argument for anti-colonialism or colonialism. You just show somebody Avatar. And they'll kind of, oh. <laughs> yeah, we it will reinforce take... every idea that yeah. you think you have. yeah. I don't know. It's uh, there's a unobtainium is the thing that the that the um, the Americans, the white people, are there to get uh, to take from the planet, and uh, they want to not uh, let us not take that because it's you know violating the land. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and you know that part about it also how it might kill everybody. <laughs> that might be a part of why. I know it's I know it's basic Native American spiritualism that you're doing, but the reality is it was probably just the thing that's going to pull all that out of the ground and, de- and destroy Pandora. Right, right. Which might be a better idea to get across, but that would require being directly liberal as opposed to I'm kind of liberal. Yeah. <laughs> It, he he's one of those well-meaning liberal people who you know what I want to stand up for Native American rights or climate change or blah 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 let me put it all in one movie about elongated smurfs who <laughs> you know like mated with tigers <laughs> I don't know I'm just I I'm not a huge fan of the movie. I will mm-hmm. probably watch it again. I will probably go see the other one. Um, I will wait till I have a credit at Cinemark. But <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 it was a perfectly fine one-off. We don't need sequels. But being James Cameron, he's got to have sequels. Yeah, I am um, not looking forward to this at all. This next three years or whatever it's going to be of just these Avatar movies. I'm just not looking and forward I'm to. Assuming it. this next one is all underwater because. I don't know. Now they're going to fight for the Titanic that sank. It's good to know that that the, that the technology that the Americans created is fully functional with a penis and everything, <laughs> and and semen. They went, yeah. went as far as as creating the ability to inf- <laughs> put forward semen, apparently, because he has a child in this movie, the Sam Worthington character, oh. and oh. and uh, the the other char- the other lady. I can't remember her name right, right now. They have a baby together in this new sequel, and it's like, but he—he's not real. He's not real. 
<laughs> also, it's kind of a human-looking baby, so maybe somehow his real penis is co- Like, don't make me think like this, James Cameron. Don't make me ask these questions. You're making me ask these questions. I... What? <laughs> I mean... I am at a loss for words, because just... If the answer to the question is, well, just don't think about it, then you've done a bad movie. You've made a bad story. Well, that's what, you know, some people well, don't worry, darling, are saying, well, if you don't think about it, you just watch it. I want to think about it. That's why I'm going to pick these threads to imagine a better movie, you know. I don't know why he... It's one of those things where, like... like you said first draft. You fall in love with your characters in the first draft, and you can't imagine that nobody else will love them exactly as they are. So you just go ahead and make a whole trilogy, four, seven movies, however many he's making with these characters, and don't think about anything past the surface. Mm-hmm. That's I, what I would, like. I would love the idea that he loves these characters, but my my vision of it is he's like typing his screenplay, typing away at the screenplay, but over here he's just like. Yeah, yes, characters, yeah, sure, characters. Technology, technology, yes, what's my technology doing? Hey, we got, does it look realistic, does it look, uh, you know, give me, show me all the blues, show me how the sky looks. Yeah, characters, sure, I'm putting, yeah, I'll get characters eventually. We'll have characters, don't worry about it. <laughs> That's yeah. how I feel about Avatar. Yeah, I just... Like, we're going to hire Sir Gordon Weaver, it's fine. She'll, she'll make something up, it'll make sense. <laughs> 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 if, if she just says the words in her voice, they'll sound commanding. <laughs> and they do. She's that good. <laughs> Somebody asked me, you know, like, what's your favorite Sigourney Weaver role that's not Ripley? Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I had to think about it. And he's like, well, mine is her role in Avatar. And I was like, what? 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 And, you know, I mean, there's, like, Eyewitness and Ghostbuster, things like that. But I was like, Avatar, huh? Why? Because only she could say this shit and make me believe it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, give me Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl. Eyewitness, even. The horribly racist Year of Living Dangerously. <laughs> Where Linda Hunt plays an Asian man. I watched that recently for the first time, and I'm just like, oh, certainly a choice. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so Avatar, back in theaters this weekend. The sequel is uh, December, I think. Probably. Something like that. I don't know. I I get paid to do this, so I have to be there. You don't have to. Just listen, listen to that inner voice that tells you you don't have to do this. Just because a lot of people are going to do it, you don't have to. Yeah, I will do it when I have a credit at Cinemark. <coughs> I will do it late at night when nobody else is there. Because I don't want to watch people just slack-jawed going, ah, <laughs> Pretty colors. Look at the colors. <laughs> Brilliant. That was ableist, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I, it, I'm not looking forward to it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I don't really care about Avatar. Well, think about it. And one more thing, just to go back to this. Like, the Avatar that he made, which he made in 2009, after the Bush administration, was already gone, where he couldn't affect anything in terms of the elections or whatever. 
uh, he makes this full-on critique of the Bush administration policies about oil and conquering and all that stuff after it's gone. So what's going to be the politics now? Is, he, is this going to be Trump? Is he going to do Trump? Is he going to do Trumpian shit? Because that's gone. It's in the past now. <laughs> well, it's gone now. I almost wonder if he like did, and then although he's been writing this for, yeah, it's true. He's probably, probably still he's probably doing the Bush administration. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this guy named Sick Janey. <laughs> Sick Daney. Yeah, yeah. This guy, he's a really evil guy. Um, Borge Jush. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? <laughs> They'll have had their first blue president. <laughs> uh, he, I, he, he's not exactly subtle. Mm, no, unobtainium tells us all we need to know about that. Yeah, I, and if they say that word in this new one, I'm just <laughs> they don't have a choice. I'm gonna laugh my ass off. <laughs> it's it's canon now. <laughs> I wish I had a canon. <laughs> Aimed at James Cameron's house. (laughs) No, at his computer. And every computer, I want to be like Linda, Linda, and Linda Hamilton in Terminator Two. He's sitting at his computer writing like Miles Dyson, and I snipe that computer. (laughs) Not even him; he can stay. I'm not not threatening violence against him. Just his computer. (laughs) Burn down his cloud. (laughs) Right, hack his cloud. And just, like, have him release Dances with Wolves again. And people are like, what are you doing? He's like, no, it's supposed to be Avatar, you guys. Why is it Fern Gully and, like, scenes from Fern Gully interspersed with Dances with Wolves? <laughs> well, yeah, can't you see it's Avatar? Oh, my God. Yeah. Final movie uh, is a movie called Moon Age Daydream. And this is a documentary about the life of David Bowie. And uh, I've, I've watched this three times now. I I love David Bowie. I think he's just absolutely genius. And what Brett Morgan, the director, has done with this is create this not merely not merely a documentary, but like an experience of the life of Bowie. Uh, that's it. Kind of reminded me weirdly, and this is a very tangential, strange sort of comparison. But like Rocket Man, what Elton John, what they did with Elton John's life, where they pre- essentially portray it as this is how Elton kind of remembers his life through the haze of memory and drugs and all that. Like that's how he kind of remembers his life. This is kind of like how you might remember Bowie's life in a dream. Uh, it's just if you had to recall, if you had to draw David Bowie from memory, like this is kind of you kind of come away with this. Uh, it's genius. Uh, it starts. You know, in in the uh, you know just before you know, Ziggy Stardust, and then d- takes you through that, and it's just playing songs, and then you've got narration from Bowie that was he did himself, not for this, but for other projects or from interviews that he conducted over the years that he archived himself. This is the first documentary to to actually get the approval of the Bowie estate and to use all of Bowie's own stuff that he created, most of which has never been seen. Uh, his own concert footage that he kept and was going to do something with eventually but never did is now in this movie which makes it just that much more amazing like there are versions of uh, live versions of these songs that just sound like nothing you've ever heard before because you haven't heard them before <laughs> it's incredible and i just cannot get enough of this movie this is like my second best movie of the year right behind everything everywhere nice what do you think of bowie 
I'm a huge Bowie fan. I always have been. Um, when I <clears throat> was a kid, <clears throat> the first Bowie that I really knew was um, Thin White Duke, Let's Dance and Modern Love and all that. So I, you know, it took me having to, like, I think I got the um, Changes CD when I was in school. And then I was like, oh. And then Night Flight used to show all his old videos. And so that's how I got into, like, the Ziggy Stardust era. Um, my friend Victoria and my friend EJ, their whole, like, online life is David Bowie well, and Bruce Lee mm-hmm. uh, and True Crime. Uh, but, you know, it's like, I see him on. A, I, I see him now more than I did when he was alive. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more because knowing so many people who are just like worshipped him, it kind of makes me a bigger fan. Sure. I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing this. I wish I, you know, had seen it before. But yeah, I just I, I. It's one of those things where where were you when David Bowie died? I remember that day precisely. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first time, so I like, like I I got the same Bowie you did. I got the the the, the suited Bowie with the, you know, he's singing with Jagger. He's doing Pepsi commercials. He's a massive, uh, monstrous superstar. The, then Bowie, the the original Bowie, sort of sneaks in via the radio stations because the amazing thing about Bowie that I love is that he's this kind of Trojan horse because he can go so hard like on his music, on his songs like they're genuine fantastic rock songs that even rock guys have to go damn that's fucking amazing <laughs> like, you oh, gotta, yeah. like they had to put it on classic rock radio you had to play the, you know, his songs on classic rock radio you had to they're too good yeah. and, and then you know it's almost like he's hiding in plain sight. Like, cause I'm just hearing a rock star. Like, you know, I'm hearing him like Led Zeppelin. I'm hearing him played next to, you know, Kansas and Boston. And then there's David Bowie. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know who David Bowie is as a teenager. So then when I go to actually see a video of him, like, and I see, you know, Ziggy and I'm like, what? And they see this guy who kind of looks like a woman and he's dressed like a woman. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> my, re- my reality shifts. And I think, what this documentary did for me and kind of made me put me in this weird thought of like how he everybody says he created a persona and it's like he did but at the same time it's like he's hiding himself he's trying he's created this character that he can be on stage but also what he's done is like challenged he's challenged your idea of reality because he's beautiful he's a beautiful man and then as a beautiful woman yeah. and he's sort of Trojan horsing this idea of what we are today, where you know this far more progressive idea of sexuality that we have today, he was Trojan horsing that in in 1972, uh, and almost unintentionally. But like, just it's this it's this sort of symbol from the past uh, sneaking into modern day. Like, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's time travel. He's a time traveler. Like he, he was here in a future where this is the perfectly acceptable thing, and then he's back in 1972, where like people go, "What is this? Yeah. How? What? How? You can't be both? What?" <laughs> well, it, he's one of he's kind of transcends um, his fan base. Is like you get the hardcore Bowie people who like everything he's ever done. Then you get the people who liked him as Ziggy Stardust. Then you get the people who liked him as a Thin White Duke. And, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, t- 
to the fact that people who just know his music, they don't know anything about him or have never really watched his videos or anything. They're like, oh, I love this song. Well, did you know it's about gay sex or whatever? And what? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, that kind of thing. It's like he he just was so ahead of his time. Yeah. It, he was glam rock before glam rock, and he was, you know, pop and, you know, kind of industrial just like so many things that he did over the years just transcended everything so it's it's amazing to watch and it's amazing to watch this documentary it's interesting that the the height of his they, they talk about the height of his popularity in the 80s when he's like the biggest one of the biggest stars in the world and doing pepsi commercials and such and he kind of looks back on that in in an interview and he's kind of regretful about it not that he thinks that the music was bad because it's not bad music he doesn't make bad music but like it he does see that as being very mainstream and not necessarily selling out he didn't sell out per se he just doesn't you know he didn't see it as selling out he didn't see it as I, I just want to make sure I have a nice house and a place for my family to live. You know, yeah. I just want to have a secure a secure future. So I did a few things that, you know, they made me money. That's pretty much it. And <laughs> uh, that's kind of the whole Bowie in the 80s. And I start thinking about Bowie in the 80s a little bit. And it's like, you know, Reagan's here. Couldn't you maybe do something to, to <laughs> kind of fuck shit up again? Like, <laughs> What's your favorite Bowie song? Oh, gosh. Um, you can have more than one. I have two. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Rebel Rebel. Okay. Yeah, I love Rebel Rebel. Um, my first favorite Bowie song is Blue Jean. Mm. Uh, the video is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then Sound and Vision. Mm. Probably my second favorite. I love Under Pressure. Yeah. That is so amazing. <laughs> yeah. A song that's definitely not stolen by Vanilla Ice. <laughs> no, it's a different, it's a different. That one goes dun, 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 dun. Mine goes dun, 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 dun. Listen to that song for too long and you start to realize that this is, this is what a panic attack is. <laughs> like, if you ever want to understand a panic attack, listen to Under Pressure like three times in a row and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> what have I done with my life? I, it wasn't until after he died that I went back and, you know, like, listened to every one of his albums and watched a lot of his videos. Um, and then, it, then I noticed, I started noticing all the influences out there. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, I, uh, American Horror Story Freak Show. I had no idea that, I knew he was, uh, that Jessica Lange was singing Life on Mars mm -hmm. with a German accent. Oof. It's actually a very, very good version of it. Mm -hmm. I really love it. Um, she also sings a Lana Del Rey song, which is the only way I can listen to Lana Del Rey is when other people are singing her music. Um, sorry, they're going to take away my gay card. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize that her scene where she's singing that in American Horror Story, she's dressed like him in the video for that song. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen the video. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, I want to see, I want to listen to him say it. So I put it on YouTube and it was like, oh, oh, okay. She's just copied his suit and everything. And it's stuff like that where you, you might not ever know the influence that you have in your life yeah. until after you're gone. And I think he was lucky enough to see the influence that he had before he passed away. Sure. So he, he'll never know the impact that he had on people's lives who saw what he was doing on stage and going, you can do that. 
It's like yep. I constantly have this idea in my head. I'm always thinking about just that thin thread that humanity is always hanging on. Society is always hanging on this very thin thread. You could drive down the wrong side of the road at traffic if you wanted to. You just don't do it. Yeah. And so when you see somebody step out of line and start doing a thing that everybody says you should you shouldn't or can't do. It, it is mind-blowing sometimes, and I can only imagine what that must have been like for people who were like, so wait, I've been having all these thoughts, and there's something something weird about me. There's something different about me. What is it? And then you go into a, a Bowie. You see Bowie on stage, and you're like, you're allowed to do that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, he, he influenced Boy George. And, you know, the whole look of Boy George in the 70s was just ripping off David Bowie and then in the 80s you know he did his own thing and that's how he he was recognized but you can I mean you see it in so many people like the, and you hear it in so many bands from the 80s that were influenced by his 70s stuff mm-hmm. and then you know he he was willing to co- co- um, collaborate with people like Trent Reznor later you know it's just like he there will never ever be anybody as that that's him in a very unique David Bowie kind of way. Yes, it's interesting. You can't really use a Bowie movie, a Bowie song in a movie because if you do, you know it has to mean something. Yeah. <laughs> it has to symbolize something. You can't you can't just throw a Bowie in there and it doesn't mean anything. It comes off like you know something like uh, uh, Con Air. They tries to use a David Bowie song. He's like, this does not go here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless he's in the movie singing it, <laughs> like in Labyrinth. <laughs> Um, Labyrinth, another movie that changed a lot of people's lives for reasons they don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I really like tight pants now? I saw somebody on Twitter, their, their display name was David Bowie's Bulge in Labyrinth. <laughs> and I just, I, I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen that movie. And I watched it, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is a children's movie? Right? <laughs> So, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. When I first heard about it, I was like, is this a biopic or please don't be a biopic? It's a, it's a documentary, but it's unlike any documentary you've ever seen. Good to know. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. It's in theaters now. I will have to check it out. It's playing at our local IMAX. Oh. It I- was filmed for IMAX. Oh, that means I have to sit in those shitty chairs. <laughs> what? If you're going to charge $45 a ticket for IMAX, I'm not, I know I'm exaggerating. If you're going to pay that much for let me sit in a chair <laughs> that isn't out of like the patio theater in Chicago from 1920. It's the same chair they've had, same chairs in that room they've had since they opened in 98. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel every single one of those years when I sit in that chair. That's why I haven't, I haven't gone to see an IMAX movie since the last time. I don't even remember what I saw. But it mm. wasn't worth it. It wasn't <laughs> worth sitting in those chairs. Maybe they'll bring it back for Cinemark XD. Who knows? We'll see. So. All right. Thank you very much.